Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The big game is upon us once again, and just like every year, Kansas City is back in the Super Bowl, but additionally, every year on the Take It Easy podcast, we have to get you set for the most important bet you will make during Super Bowl Sunday. That is, of course, what color Gatorade is going to dunk the winning head coach after the Super Bowl. Now, traditionally, you would suspect that red would be the color to go for. I mean, Kansas City is red, San Francisco's red, they're different variations in colors, but guess what? Kansas City has won two of the last four Super Bowls, no red on the Gatorade color. In fact, red has not been the Gatorade color of choice in any of the previous 22 Super Bowls. Red never comes up on the Super Bowl odds list, so don't fall into the trap this year of thinking red is going to be the color. Instead, the favorite is the yellow-green color Gatorade, which, depending on where you gamble, you can get yellow and green at different colors, but the lemon-lime color of Gatorade is the favorite at plus 150. Orange and red tied at 275, blue at 400, and then at plus 450 we have purple. Now it's important to remember purple because purple was the winning color last year at the Super Bowl. When Kansas City beat Philadelphia, it was purple Gatorade that came through. And that was surprising because it was the first time in 11 years that purple Gatorade had been the Gatorade color of choice to dunk the winning head coach, not since the New York Giants won the Super Bowl in 2012. So it's an interesting conversation here. You could get the the lemon-lime color, perennially the favorite, most common type you're going to find, orange, a strong candidate, but if you're looking for a good value play this year, plus 400 on blue is a good choice, because blue has been the color of choice in three of the previous five Super Bowls. Blue was the Patriots' choice after they won the Super Bowl against the Rams, which again, Patriot blue, Ram blue, you could understand the color choice there. Blue was the color for the Buccaneers when Tom Brady won the Super Bowl. Blue was the color of choice when the Rams won the Super Bowl two years ago in Los Angeles. There's so many different options and so many different colors. Blue at plus 400 is the value play of the year. It is historically the most common color of choice, and even though last year we went with purple, blue is perennially at the top of the list. And last year, blue was the favorite. This year, blue's coming in at a long shot plus 400. I think blue is the play to go with for this year's big game color. Now, here's the fun catch. When you go to Bet Online Sportsbook with the link in the description of this episode and use our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, you get a 50% welcome bonus on your original deposit. And if you take that 50% welcome bonus and put it all onto blue to win the Super Bowl, you're not getting plus 400 odds, you're getting plus 600 what you originally would have made. So you could make six times your money by betting on blue to be the color of Gatorade that is chosen when Kansas City wins the big game on Sunday. Was this three and a half minutes of big game analysis? Yes, it was. Was it three and a half minutes of deciding what color is going to be the Gatorade bath at the end of the game? You're damn right. And it was three and a half minutes well spent, and you should take this information, go to Bet Online Sportsbook, and make your picks today. Bet Online, where the game starts. Thank you. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm excited to tie one on, as Walter just said before we hopped on the recording, or at least the actual recording part. I wish I wish. Say it one more time for me, Walter. It's the tie podcast with Little Rock Ledbetter. Yeah, let's tie one on. Let's tie one on Super Bowl style. Let's do it. Walter did mention it's Super Bowl week. The biggest moment in American sports and really just kind of the end of the previous year's sports calendar. That's kind of like my marker for the end of the year is uh, is when the Super Bowl passes. I know I'm super excited for this Super Bowl. It's why we brought our friends Joe Camo and Walter Mitchell back together for another power hour. Joe Camo, of course, runs the wonderful and wacky Cardinal Rule podcast and YouTube channel that you can uh, find anywhere that YouTube is available, which I guess is just YouTube. Uh, And then Walter and I, of course, have the wonderful and wacky Red Rain podcast. Walter does fantastic stuff writing as well. If you guys want to check out his work at Revenge of the Birds, as always, we are so happy when these two get together and uh, we all get to do fun and wacky sports content. So it is Super Bowl week. There's obviously a big game coming around it, but obviously the Super Bowl is in and of itself its own unique and interesting event. So Joe Camo, as a avid football fan, professor of sociology, uh, and just a very interesting person altogether with interesting perspectives on the world, when I tell you that it's Super Bowl week, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about the event of the Super Bowl or the game of the Super Bowl or just anything around Super Bowl week. You know, in general, uh, being a Cardinals fan, only having got to enjoy one of these games with my team in it, it it's um, it is the spectacle. Certainly, the, the this is going to sound like just not the biggest football fan, but the commercials are always kind of this cultural kind of thing. And, you know, I don't watch a lot of other games from other teams besides the Cardinals. Once in a while, I'll catch one. So this is kind of the one game where I sit down and really watch, you know, uh, you know, the full game and, and really pay close attention. So it, it's it's also, I guess, sort of for me, a barometer of kind of resetting my calibration. Okay, this is what really good teams look like when they play football, you know, or at least they're supposed to look like, um, and which maybe helps me recenter my expectations for the Cardinals. Um, there's a different topic for this particular Super Bowl that has my interests that w- we can get to, which is very unique to this particular 2024 edition of the Super Bowl. But more or less, that, yeah, that's what I think about. And Walter, when I ask you about the Super Bowl, the spectacle, same question, what do you think about? Taylor Swift. I mean, there's no other way to get around it. I mean, this is the Taylor Swift Super Bowl, and I'm ready to roll with this. I, I, I just think this is a football phenomenon. I mean, I think they're going to break um, the Super all-time Super Bowl um, viewership record, whatever that is, <laughs> by millions. Um, I just so and I. I love it. I think it's just, it's an American love story. And uh, I think she's been very gracious. Um, and, you know, she doesn't need one iota of this added attention. But clearly she has made this about Travis and her love for him and uh, and, and her support of the Chiefs and the, 
and the Kelsey family and um, and family and friends. And um, I think it's awesome. So, um, you know, I know some people find it an annoying distraction or whatever, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, this adds a little extra intrigue to the game. And as a Cardinals fan, as Joe was saying, we were treated to this once and, I'd like to go back to two minutes and 30-something seconds left and replay <laughs> that last a uh, little bit. But, um, but uh, you know, uh, to the thought of with Mahomes in what, playing in his sixth year, I think, you know, he didn't play as a rookie. So having 17, this will be his 18th playoff game. And Joe and I know all too well that the Cardinals – in their 121 year history have played in 17 playoffs <laughs> game. The disparity of that is just <laughs> alarming. But yeah, I mean Mahomes uh gotta give that kid a lot of credit, you know, at, at going on the road this year to win his two. And then you know, the Niners appear to be a team of destiny. So it's fascinating to see if the young quarterback brought um Purdy, who engineered two very impressive comebacks um, for the first two comeback wins of uh, of um, Shanahan's career, which was stunning to know. Um, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I think it's going to be a really exciting game. I think the the uh, viewership records are going to just fly. You know, it's going to be an all time record. Um, it's must see TV, and I'm ready to roll. Do you have any guess, either of you, what currently, which Super Bowl currently holds the record for highest viewership of all time? Not in terms of like percentage of people watching, but in terms of the sheer number of people who watch the Super Bowl. Do you, do you have any guesses which of the games holds the record? My guess is going to be the one that was played in 2021 because everyone was kind of at home, had nothing better to do. <laughs> Lockdown people who would normally watch it would watch it. That's my best guess. Wow. That's a great guess. Jeez. Yeah. I'm going to guess Patriots Giants for some reason. Which one? Because there's two Patriots Giants. Um... I'll go with the second one. The second one, 2012. Okay. Right. Or I guess that would be 2011, but the 2010... No, 2011, but the 2012 season. So the answer is not Joe Camo's, which interestingly enough, according to the rating numbers they have here, the Super Bowl actually went down in viewership between 2020 and 2021. Uh Fox for 2020, which was the first Kansas City, San Francisco, hosted 101.3 million. And then the Super Bowl during the pandemic in uh, February of 2021 posted 95.2. So they saw about a 6% decline in ratings during the COVID wow. championship, which interesting note that I did not think of. Um, the correct answer coming in at 114.44 all time is the Patriots Seahawks Malcolm Butler Super Bowl. That is oh, the wow. Oh, at our stadium, Joe. Right. And then Man. 
weirdly enough, the second all-time number right now is the year before when the Seahawks just crushed the Broncos like 48 to 8. Weirdly enough, that's still number two on the list of most viewed Super Bowls. And then number three is last year between Kansas City and Philadelphia. So there's there is a chance they'll break the record number going into this hmm. year. Well, Interesting. Yeah. So let, uh, hey, I want to go back and say, uh, Walter, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the Taylor Swift thing because that was I alluded to that. As I'm sure you all figured out that was the particular thing to this year that. And to me, it's it's the uh, the sort of the the culture war surrounding that, which I, I have a feeling we're going to talk about a good bit. All right, let's talk about the Taylor Swift of it all. Uh, obvi- <laughs> <laughs> obviously, Kansas City has been like the football team of an era, essentially. I mean, they, they've taken the mantle directly from the Patriots and replicated the success of the second Patriot dynasty. I mean, from a football standpoint, Kansas City is i think in the in the modern era if you want to call you know post 1970 the modern era i mean kansas city has essentially succeeded in ways that only the the patriots have succeeded in terms of a five to six year run of success where they've made it to the conference championship every year four super bowls there's a chance they'll win three winning three super bowls in five years is something that only i believe three teams have ever accomplished between the 70s Pittsburgh Steelers and the Patriots twice, (laughs) the first Patriots dynasty and the second Patriots dynasty. So Kansas City has been this incredible football juggernaut for years now, and yet they have never been more popular than right now and more polarizing, I'd argue, than right now because of the Taylor Swift of it all. Uh, obviously, Joe, you're a social scientist. You found some intrigue around this story. Um, what what do you think about the Taylor Swift of it all? And you can dive into the culture war stuff as well, kind of how Kansas City has never been more popular, more talked about on a national level or i guess on a brand-based level but also that it's become incredibly polarizing between people with agendas or people with disingenuous intentions around it yeah for sure and you know so there does seem to be uh, this sort of conservatism kind of leaning towards the the backlash against Taylor Swift and more of a progressive kind of backing uh, of her, you know, kind of, or, you know, in this whole kind of Taylor Swift culture war thing. So I, I think, I think there's a, there's a number of like uh, these kind of ideological underpinnings that this has become a conduit for like kind of expressing people's ideologies or pushing them, you know, people who have these strong feelings about things when they see something that, you know, to them is a place where they can project, you know, kind of what their, their ideological bent is, they'll take it up as an opportunity to argue, you know, whatever their leaning is. And I think there's, there's a number of things, you know, kind of embedded within this, you know, at a very surfacely level, certainly there's the Aaron Rodgers, you know, Travis Kelsey um, kind of, you know, kind of uh, views of, of vaccines, you know, kind of an anti-vaccine kind of positions and such that certainly gets there by connection, Taylor Swift, you know, becomes kind of another piece of that. Um, But I also think, you know, there are some of these kind of other ideological things. Um, You know, certainly there's some kind of, uh, you know, political, like, you know, 
Taylor Swift's politics are at least moderately progressive. I think there's some of that. And then just the whole, you know, being a, a part of media, right. That, that kind of is grouped in with that. Um, but I also think like it gets to be sort of this place for, uh, you know, the uh, conservatism is about keeping things the way they are as a fundamental philosophy, right? It's, it's, and, and let me say like in the current American political kind of discourse that it's become so toxic, obviously, you know, uh, you know, the two teams, so to speak politically, not football wise, but like as a fundamental philosophy, like liberal and conservative are, are supposed to be like a yin and yang, right? You know, like you've got conservatism, which is about, looking at the existing traditions and institutions and structures. And it's kind of this idea that, you know, order is hard to find and create and is very easy to lose. So protect those embedded institutions from being torn down by the, from the whims of, you know, whatever the current, you know, kind of new, uh, I don't know, uh, flavor of the month is. Um, And, Liberalism as an ideology or, or as a philosophy is about recognizing that institutions are often constructed by those with power and often are harsher, unfair to those on the margins, right? Uh, and it it bring it's you know it's oriented towards change and it is destabilizing, right? So in a perfect yin and yang world where these two philosophies have found a balance, the way it's supposed to work is that kind of progressive or liberalism is supposed to look at what's going on in the world and identify the things that are problematic and say, hey, there's some injustice going on here. There's things that can be better. We need to do something about it. And conservatism is supposed to say, okay, I hear you, but slow your roll. Let's make sure we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? That's that's the way it should work. Now, in American politics, both sides just think the other is evil and stupid, and it, it's it's really toxic. So where am I going with this? Think about like, football right and fandom and it, it it represents something you know competitive it does historically represent something masculine right um you know and you know i think you know there's these traditions about what it's supposed to be like to be a football fan what watching the football what football the super bowl is like and then now you have you know uh taylor Swift, who's bringing in a whole group of new fans, right? Who are Swifties, who are by association becoming, you know, Kansas City, uh, you know, Chiefs fans and and football fans, and they come into it without that history or those traditions or you know the way that the way that those you know folks who have been fans forever, you know, uh, are, think that we're supposed to watch watch this and appreciate it and enjoy a Super Bowl party and all of those things. Now you've got, you know, this whole new fleet of fans who come from, you know, being fans of a pop star. And then they have a different way, perhaps, that they come in like, well, why do you do things that way? We're going to have our Super Bowl party and it's going to look this way. And, you know, and we're going we're gonna to be fans this way. And, you know, there's, there's sort of this people who've been there for a while, kind of when someone new comes in, sometimes there's sort of this, this gatekeeping that happens and, no, I've been here forever. I've put in my dues. I've suffered through being a fan. And you're coming in here riding high on a dynasty that as you talked about, being a fan of this, you know, you're 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 a band, you know, bandwagon fan and this that and there becomes this tension, right? And and some of it ties that conservatism is this idea of stability and keeping 
consistent. No, this is our game. This is the way it's supposed to be. And and then the liberalism is the change, and you know the the new fans coming in are are bringing about a different approach. And and you know that change though often can be good, right? There's there's you know you talked about how this this is like good chances will be the most watched Super Bowl ever, and it's going it's bringing a whole new group of fans. But there's also sort of a a gendered piece to this, and and kind of a, a kind of a feminist critique of that. Like f- football has been such a boys club, women. Are there are women, plenty of women who are fans of football, but there's always been also this sort of gatekeeping where if you are a woman who wants to be a football fan, it's almost like you have to fit into the culture of how men think this sport's supposed to be appreciated, right? Like, like there's there's sort of this conforming that often has to happen that women have to kind of fit in and appreciate it within kind of the the kind of the parameters of the way men feel like that's supposed to be. Um, and now you have this this critical mass, this this force of nature that is the Swifties, who come in and in their sheer force and momentum of number and energy, they can say, "Screw that!" You know, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make a new way of enjoying this. And there's already been social media posts about you know how the the the, the Swifty Super Bowl parties, and they already do Super Bowl parties better than us, and and all this. So I just think there's all those sorts of things gatekeeping culture war stuff that are really embedded with the you know those who support and oppose kind of the whole taylor swift connection to football great job professor that was brilliant um (laughs) thank you beautifully summarized and detailed yeah no i mean these are this is a but conflict is always good for audience. It really is. I mean, like my po- poetry writing professor, uh, Barbara Helfgott Hyatt, always said, if there is no danger, there is no poem. Unless you want to write Hallmark cards, but you won't find a Hallmark card in a, a poetry anthology. <laughs> conflict holds people's attentions and and i think that the way that you've you um detailed the the conflicts at stake here um makes this all the more compelling um and uh and the debates all the more robust of you know is this good for football is this isn't is this not and um but i i you know i'm on the side of thinking that that this is really good for football. I mean, you're bringing more viewers in and create more intrigue and, uh, you know, but, um, but the real eyes need to be on the game, obviously. Um, that's where uh, the real uh, important results will, will uh, prove themselves um, as to who's going to win this game. I don't know. Who do you guys think? Uh, who do you like coming in? Uh, in terms of the favorite for the game, I would probably lean towards San Francisco. But, you know, my philosophy for four years, Walter, has been you always bet on red and you double down. You got to always bet on Kansas City. They're they're, they're going to let you down a whole lot less often than, than they are going to. They're, they're going to succeed way more often than they're going to let you down. It's been proven time and time again with the greatest quarterback in NFL history and the uh 
Oh, Joe just dropped out, but we'll just keep going through it with the greatest quarterback in NFL history. And uh, for my money, and we laid this out in a long podcast, the greatest offensive coach in the history of the NFL. When you have those two things, a lot of your problems get easier. Yeah, and I would agree with you for Kansas City because also Steve Spagnuolo, um, their defensive coordinator, is a big game coach. And I love the way he has his young secondary covering people and <coughs> excuse me in this game obviously that's going to be critical you got to be able to cover you got to be able to tackle McCaffrey cover him out of the backfield and you need to be able to cover Debo and Ayuk and Kittle and they've got the players to do that um you know one of their greatest additions was Trent McDuffie um <laughs> you know, he has uh, been fabulous. He's now an all-pro uh, slot corner. The other day on um, social media, one of the national football pundits, um, uh, who was it? Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm trying to remember. I'm drawing a blank there. But he, he posted out a question to the fa- football fans on Twitter. Aside from quarterback – what position today is more most important? And I think I was the only one to answer this, but you know that you know me well enough to know this is coming. I wrote slot cornerback because uh, if you can't cover the slot today in today's football, um, it's really tough to win. Um, and you know the battle of winning the middle of the field and. Um, it's always a, a critical, um, you know, component. And when you have cover guys who are sticky like McDuffie and Sneed, um, boy, they've got they got players there who, who really get after it and and you know cover you the minute you run out of the tunnel. So that combination to me speaks to um, a win. Now they've got to get pressure on Purdy, that's for sure too, and. Um, you know, but they've got the horses to do that too. I mean, with Carl Aftis, Chris Jones, um, you know, they got players there that can apply pressure, but you know, I mean, the 49ers feel like a team of destiny and it's amazing to me that, uh, that Christian McCaffrey stayed healthy this entire, you know, since basically since they got him. I mean, that was the thing in Carolina was, you know, when the trade was made was, yeah, but how, you know, and and they've, you know, Shanahan has ridden him like Seabiscuit. I mean, they don't hold back in any game. They keep him in all four quarters, even when they're way ahead. I mean, they've just played and played and played him. And amazingly, he has held up um, so incredibly boy, those, does he attack the line of scrimmage and he is just so dynamic. So, and, um, so that and, aspect of it, is, go ahead. I was going to say, while we're on the topic, you, I want to give you props for Trent McDuffie because two years ago when we were doing draft analysis, you nailed it on Trent McDuffie. You're talking about, he could be a top of the league slot corner and you wanted him for the Cardinals. And then he ended up 
going to Kansas City with the pick that they traded for Tariq Hill. You, Walter, your draft, one of the best draft analyses I've seen with Trent McDuffie. You you were spot on with him and his success. So if you value the slot corner, you're damn good at evaluating the slot corner as well. Yeah, and then this past year, I was promoting Brian Branch. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's amazing to me that Branch went in the 40s. I mean, I would have, I think now if you did a redraft, he's got to be in the top half of the first draft. I mean, first round. Um, just so valuable that, um, to be able to cover the slot. He was huge for the Lions this year. Huge, huge component for that. So, you know, the Patriots left a model that's still being applied today is that you attack the middle of the field in three waves. First, um, you want to attack the scene with a receiver so and attract the, the safety. Second, you want to, uh, you know, attack the middle by by running digs and curls with your tight ends. And then you run the third wave of a running back in underneath. Um, And Brady used that formula to win six rings um, and and was like a surgeon um, with Edelman, with Gronkowski, with, you know, he had Super Bowls where running backs um, had – more than a hundred yards uh, in receiving. Uh, remember that Atlanta game that the comeback. They who was the running back White um, had uh, over a hundred yards receiving in that game, um, and so it's become uh, a defensive coordinator's uh, challenge to how can we stop good passing teams from exploiting us over the middle. And if you don't have today's kind of cover linebackers um, inside, and if you don't have a good slot corner, and if you have safeties who are tentative, and if you can't man up on people, um, it's a long day. Um, it's a, you know, so credit to the Chiefs. Um, you know, I think they, they're back in, and they're all young um, guys. I mean, they're – it's amazing. I mean, they've the Chiefs only, I think, allocated eighty million of their cap this year to defense, and the reason being is that Chris Jones has, takes up most of it, and the, almost the rest of their players are still on rookie contracts. It's mm-hmm. awesome, you know. And that's yeah. a model that teams are going to be looking at for years to come too. Absolutely, and. I'd love to dissect the the Kansas City of it all because there's there's such an interesting perspective around that. Um, I wanted to address what Joe brought up before because I know we kind of pivoted to football after that. But uh, Joe, you were talking about the the kind of social the 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 at the Taylor Swift aspect of how football culture kind of changes. And I thought the thing that you mentioned that was really interesting is the gender based aspect of it. And I wanted to ask you about that real quick because for so many years you mentioned the point that like women have kind of fit into football where it's seen fit you know it's a very male dominated sport and and the the 
it's kind of been who gets to enjoy football, you know, who gets to be the person who goes in on Sundays and enjoys this cathedral for so many times. And it, and it's essentially been prioritizing the feelings of male customers and then just kind of fitting female customers in wherever they so choose. And I don't think the NFL has made a concerted effort around the Swifties to kind of, you know, bring them in and be inviting and things of those sorts. It's just kind of been them doing their own thing around football uh, and specifically around Kansas City when Taylor Swift is going to be there. Um, And because Taylor Swift's audience is primarily female and essentially is my generation and the generation below me in terms of the, the cultural value that Taylor Swift has had, like one of the things that is pretty remarkable is just the the sheer length of of impact like just how long taylor swift has been someone who has an impact on the culture who has cultural value for multiple generations i mean it's been close to 15 years that taylor swift has been winning grammys and being one of if not the most popular artists in the world but it's just interesting to see how you're right about this being a reminder of the gender-based discrepancy within football because football fans are very often forced, you know, it's very much catered towards women fit in where they, where the football sees them fit. And it's, it's always been this question of who's allowed to enjoy Sundays and who's allowed to be the person who is enjoyed around football. I know that this case, this has been a, a topic of conversation in so many respects for the last 10 years um, around what happened with Ray Rice and him being suspended and then double suspended and the NFL having to change their domestic violence policy. There was a massive backlash around that uh, a few years ago with Deshaun Watson, where the NFL enables and protects someone who's detailed to have dozens of cases of uh, sexual misconduct and what was deemed nonviolent sexual assault by the NFL and how He's enabled and protected. He's going to be continued to be put on your screen on Sundays. And that's going to be a conversation where if it's something that's uncomfortable for you, right, primarily female, but also men who look at that and feel it as it being incredibly uncomfortable, you're the person who has to deal with it. You're the person who has to adjust and contour to football instead of football adjusting to you. And I think it's interesting that in this case, which is far less serious than cases of domestic violence and sexual assault, needing to see football culture adjust. Now you have just a general backlash to young people and a general backlash to women being interested in football in a way that's unique, in a way that's different and pushes back against conventional norms of football fandom. I think that it's inc- it's incredibly interesting to think about the gender-based discrepancy in in some of the responses to the Taylor Swift of it all and some of the responses to watching you know Kansas City make a run to the championship and seeing people jump in and do their own th- like take football culture and do their own thing even if there's a, a an understanding or like a beginning understanding of some of the cultural norms but imagine trying to jump into football in five months and thinking that you're going to understand all the conventions that, and some of the the things that we take for granted that are incredibly stupid and incredibly silly. Some of the conventions of football that we take advantage of. And so I thought that was very interesting that you brought up the point about the gender-based discrepancy in what's happening between the, the disconnect of the Taylor Swift of it all for Kansas city and the, the conventional 
male dominated sports fandom or some of the male specific traditions that exist around football and football fandom. Yeah. I mean, you know, think about for the person who kind of has the, you know, the kind of hyper masculine old school way of thinking who, and listen, if I, some people listen to this might, might, this might touch on a nerve, but I'm guessing with the topics that we've talked about on here before your audience is probably uh, more uh, open to these kinds of discussions. Uh, But um, the person, a person with a very kind of old school kind of, you know, patriarchal kind of, you know, toxic masculinity mindset, you know, that, you know, this, this is a manly sport and, you know, when the damn feminists come in, they're going to turn everything girly and whatever. And then they see Taylor Swift and the, the army of Swifties and, you know, and, and to them, this is exactly what they fear, right? They're going to come in and turn their Super Bowl parties into something that looks like, uh, you know, like a, some sort of Valentine's party or something. Right. And, and they're, they're getting all worked up, right? They, you're not, don't, don't come change my damn football game. Right. And, you know, like there's, there's a little bit, I mean, I have some sympathy towards the idea that there are football traditions of football. I mean, traditions are kind of what gives something an ethos. So I, I think there's something to be said for some of those traditions and and not just completely discarding them. So I don't want to, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to yeah, be unsympathetic towards that, but it does kind of hit on some of those gender based kind of political sorts of things. Um, and as we talked about, like historically women have had, had to kind of fit in like to the, the male kind of, you know, constructed uh, ways of experiencing football and Super Bowl parties. Like, you know, men have these ideas and the Super Bowl party uh, is supposed to look like, uh, you know, kind of like a bar food kind of hangout in your living room. Right. And, and, you know, like the spaces that have been carved out for women are, you can come attend you, you can even get a jer, you know, a team hat or Jersey in pink. Right. <laughs> and you can, you can, you can help with the food, but the food's still going to be, you know, chicken wings, nachos and and stuff like that. So it's still kind of structured around kind of, you know, what the way it has been. Um, so, you know, so now you have this, this kind of group that's potentially going to, you know, be pushing for change and, you know, I, Walter and I kind of collaborated on an article a while back about, you know, being an optimistic sports fan. And, you know, that was a lot of fun to write. And and the, the conversation around that was really interesting. And, you know, my my approach towards sports fandom is sort of relativist, agnostic, whatever you want to call it, that I just believe that you should be able to enjoy sports however you want, as long as you're not hurting someone else, right? You know, not getting in the way of someone else's ability to do that. Um, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be about winning. Like people say, if you're not winning it, whatever, well, as a fan, I'm a Cardinals fan. We ain't done a lot of winning, but I still have a lot of really great memories and, you know, connections with people like both of you that are there because I'm a fan of this losing team. Right. Um, so like if, if the Swifty, you know, army wants to enjoy the Super Bowl and football, however they want to enjoy it, then I'm like, great, you know? let them um now kind of in just and stepping back and being maybe a little more objective and looking at what i think this all means like you know change social change right we think about social change in sociology a lot like you have these existing institutions and then what happens is you have some sort of revolution like you know at a macro societal level you think the industrial revolution to social media computers as a revolution technology actually is the biggest driver of change right something changes our our ways of producing things you know like the industrial revolution and then 
everything changes in society. People move from rural to urban areas instead of, you know, being farm farmers and people work on in the home, they work in factories and in offices and in businesses. Um, and what ha- often happens is some drastic change comes in and shakes everything up. And then, you know, the, ex- but it, it, you have the existing, the way the world was something new comes in, shakes it up. And then there's something new that comes out of this. Now I'm going to get real deep here. Uh, if you've ever studied Hegel, right. Uh, a German philosopher, they kind of call these dialectics, right. You have, uh, you have thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. You have your thesis is your starting position, the way things are. Antithesis is something that is sort of opposite or opposed to that comes in. Those two duke it out. And then in the end, you have something new, this synthesis, this combination, whatever survives from the, the battle of the thesis and antithesis is your synthesis. And that becomes your new starting point. That becomes in the next dialectical cycle, the thesis, right? So you Change happens, arguably, to go in a Hegelian bent uh, from this. You have this starting point, and this goes back to the thing I talked about, conservatism and liberalism. You know, in many ways, the thesis is conservatism, antithesis is liberalism, right? In, in a, a, you know, kind of a just a historical way, a starting position of whatever's going on in the world, change comes in, they duke it out, and then some, and in the end, it's, it's inevitably different. So, the Swifty thing is going to have some sort of effect, but the question is how big is it? Um, my, my, and what I would project and uh, sociologists are notoriously bad at predicting the future and good at analyzing what has happened. Uh, <laughs> so I may be off on this, but uh, this is the, this is what I think is going to end up happening. Um, I think with, with the Taylor Swift, the Swifties that are fans of the, of the chiefs right now, um, like, you know, the future of Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift is is really a big variable. That's like if, if for whatever reason they broke up next, you know, next year, um, like most of those Swift, like 95% or more of the Swifties are who became Chiefs fans are gone. Maybe a few of them got hooked by it and stick around, right? But most of them are gone. If they stay together for a while, if not for, you know, who knows, however long and through his retirement and beyond. Um, I think what will happen is there will still be a good portion of them that when he's no longer playing and Taylor Swift's no longer at the games, get bored, right? Lose interest that, that just, they, they, they came along for the Swifty ride and they just didn't get, you know, pulled into football enough. There will be a percent of them who just got pulled in, enjoyed the experience and continue to be fans and maybe become football fans, because of that. So, you know, the NFL gains, uh, you know, a whole kind of cohort of fans that, you know, culturally, you know, maybe weren't predisposed to football, but now are into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think like, you know, this wave is going to, you know, recede some, right. The, the, the tide of the Swifty kind of momentum um, it, it's going to have an effect and then it's going to wash away and there'll be some of the fans that stay um, the new fans and some of those changes, a few or new things might stick around, but a lot of it will kind of wash away, just I, I think. So, you know, you might see some changes to women who are sports fans, football fans who were here before the Swifties and through the Swifties see what, hey, look, we can have our kind of experience. We can have the Super Bowl and the, the game day the way 
that the Swifties, you know, brought that we can, it doesn't have to be as hyper-masculine. It can be our, you know, we can do our thing the way we want to. And they continue to bring that, right? And maybe you see, you know, some residual effect. That's the change that might stick around is that it maybe gives, you know, women who are fans and have been fans and continue to be fans of the NFL, maybe a little bit feeling a little more room to kind of, you know, enjoy the sport that, in a way that is a little less hyper-masculine. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it is probably more of a trend than it is a a, a one-year trend more than it is a long-term standing thing. And it does give us an opportunity to just reflect on how we view society at large because in the same case that you're talking about, there's people who are pushing back on the don't change my football type of stuff, which, you know... I think it's for people who are really that aggressively against it. I think we can kind of just check the misogyny of it all off in their box and some greater character concerns. But what I'm just interested in is that there's also just the casual position to take right now is being anti Taylor Swift on my television screen or being anti Kansas City because I don't like them winning all the time. And therefore, I'm going to push back against Travis Kelsey, or I'm going to push back against the liberal values of Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. And Taylor Swift's been around for so long now that she's made the mis- She's learned from the mistakes of the past of like, you know, she has some influence on her audience, but a lot of the time her audience influences her and a lot of the, the political beliefs that she has there. And she's, she's been around so long that she's made all the mistakes of like, endorsing the wrong product or supporting the wrong stance or whatever she's made all those mistakes and kind of learned and is very cool and calculated now in terms of like liberal versus conservative supporting points and all the stuff like that but it's just interesting that kind of the casual position that's been taken on a lot of this is pushing back against taylor swift and you know it's fine you know sometimes it can be as simple as the football trend of i'm rooting for my team or i'm rooting against this team it can be as simple as that and there's also some deeper rooted misogynistic cultural stuff that makes it the convenient position to just push back against taylor swift and by proxy pushing back against women because you know a predominant base of her audience is women uh and that's kind of the thing that people are are able to connect the dots on and i thought you uh you articulated it very well about the 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 thesis and the antithesis and then what comes out of it is the synthesis at the end because you know i don't know what's going to stick i don't know what is going to become a cultural point in in all of this or if it really means all that much i mean it's one aspect of the super bowl but you know we can essentially chalk it up right now to like the attention donna kelsey was getting last year in the super bowl when when both her sons were in the super bowl and then she ended up getting the endorsement deals and she was uh you know travis joked that she was getting more interviews during Super Bowl week than he was getting in terms of requests. You know, maybe we chalk it up to like it's it's like what happened with with the Kelsey mom last year is what's happening this year with Taylor Swift. And then by next year, it'll just it'll be another thing and and we'll move on from it. And it'll be a very specific cultural moment, which, you know, like you said, all depends on whether or not they're going to get engaged on the field or whatever people are saying is going to happen at the Super Bowl after Kansas City wins. You know, there's a prop bet for that, right? I was just seeing this oh, uh, an article about this. Yes. Uh, there's also one that is just stealing your money that says 
Travis Kelsey will propose at halftime of the Super Bowl, to which I'll say there's no chance that for people who know football, that will never happen ever at halftime of the Super Bowl is not when that's going to happen. But they're there to take your money if you're uh, unfamiliar with some of the the dynamics of how a football game works. (laughs) Yeah, and how, how much the NFL absolutely kind of controls every second of that halftime show absolutely and also like you're in the middle of competition (laughs) like it's not like the halftime show is like oh you go see your family and you know have a orange slice that's not how the halftime works in football (laughs) uh which yeah if there are prop bets about this there are taylor swift specific prop bets as well um it's a it's a quick way to make a buck it's a it's a good way to take advantage of people and maybe make a quick buck (laughs) I mean, yeah. I mean, can you imagine a universe in which he actually did do that, and then Kansas City lost the Super Bowl? How panned he would be, you know, from from fans and the media for you know, uh, instead of being in in there making their halftime adjustments, which are overrated. Right? They don't think they that that's usually coach stuff, but still, it would be a convenient way to kind of totally criticize them. So there's just no way. I no. I don't think there's any way it'll happen after the Super Bowl either. Right. It's just, right yeah. There's there's no chance that's going to win or lose. There's no chance that's going to happen. I think after the game, there is a, I'm not going to say, I think it's going to happen by any stretch. I could see that happening after, but halftime, no way, no way. No, no Cardinal fans will never forget. Some of them still blame offensive line coach, coach Russ Grimm for getting caught on camera, watching the halftime show. <laughs> while eating a hot dog. <laughs> That's so rough. Oh, my God. I mean, get your ass back in the locker room, dude. What the frick are you doing? You know, so. <laughs> who, who do you guys remember? Who was the halftime show when you guys, um, when the Cardinals were in the Super Bowl? I, I don't remember who it was that year. I don't remember either. But, you know, with the synthesis part, and that was really well well done with the Hegel um, having read some Hegel myself uh, way back when. Um, The synthesis part for me is fascinating because uh, like my sister and her wife, they live in Austin, Texas. And um, which, first of all, by the way, for those of us who grew up in the North, um, you know, the gender element in football for ages, I mean, women, and football have been synonymous down, you know, south of the Mason-Dixon. I mean, they grew up with that passion, Friday Night Lights. I mean, you know, women have always been a part of that. So there's quite a contingent of women who are dialed into their teams all the time. Um, uh, but and up north, it's quite, quite different. And I think that's what's really changing because, and my sister was from up north, um, because they both, fell in love with Patrick Mahomes and um, they're now chief fans because of it. And I could see why, I mean, Mahomes, not only is he lovable on those state farm commercials, hogging the nuggies and doing the, doing the, um, the, the, what do you call it? Packages, the bundles. (laughs) (laughs) He, um, he plays the game with a spirit. And a um, aggressive Elon and style that, uh, you know, I mean, how many quarterbacks get, you know, 
driven out of bounds, bounce up and sprint back to the huddle the way he does. I mean, he's all business when he gets on the field and he's all hustle. And there's something about him that's magnetic and alluring. And that's why I think some of the Swifties who've joined the party, they may not, you know, I mean, if Travis Kelsey retires and, and you know, they're not at the games anymore, I'm thinking a number of them will fall in love with Mahomes enough to, you know, or Trent McDuffie <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to hang on as fans. I mean, now I'm like, my Christmas gifts are like Chiefs pair, Chiefs merch to my sister. And I think it's so awesome. Uh, my sister's wife uh, was uh, a big Peyton Manning fan. So wherever he was playing, she followed him. And now her the love of her football life is Patrick Mahomes. And um, I just think it's so cool that, um, you know, how people can do that. But one other thought struck me very profoundly as, as you both were um, talking about this you know, culturally is that, and I was struck by this this morning when I was reading on, on a tweet, how someone was so impressed that at the Grammys, a um, lesbian black singer and a white um, country singer combined to sing a song, you know, Fast Car with uh, Tracy Chapman and uh, Luke Combs. I mean, if you saw that, I mean, it was awesome. And um, the the remark on the tweet, which I thought was so salient, was that leave it to America to have this kind of inclusion um, and um, of, you know, and a meeting uh, and a, uh, um, a, a melding of um, people from different backgrounds and persuasions. And I think the spirit of America is intended to be that. It's intended to be inclusive, not exclusive. And so the more and more that, you know, we evolve as an American society, despite all the pushbacks and the, you know, um, you know, the, the more and more we actually live up to our own creed and our own, um, you know, sort of uh, value in the melting pot um, of America, then, you know, the, any measures like this that become inclusive become, um, you know, germane to an American plight. And I'd just say, too, is, you know, you both saw Ted Lasso, right? Yes. Oh, I love Ted Lasso. It's, oh my God! Well, look at yeah. the inclusion. I mean that that show was just so brilliant in the aspect of bringing people from different cultures together and united in a you know on a on a for a single person purpose and a common and by a common spirit. And I think ultimately, what Ted Lasso proved was this is what you know. I, I think the American creed has aspired for is that all men are created and women are created equal. And that because of that, and because of the common spirit to want to um, join hands and be inclusive. I mean, Joe knows this so well as a professor. I mean, we talk about inclusion all the time uh, as teachers, um, you know, and, and, and it's such a tricky 
tricky element in a classroom too because of how you know you how inclusive you want to get with with the students um what's your thought on that joe about inclusion oh boy it, that's a big t- i do a lot of work with that I actually I've, I've served on like diversity committees in in uh, at my university at a, a local school uh like uh primary secondary school i i've you know a lot of my research and teaching has been in the area of race, ethnicity, and other types of things that are within the context of inclusion. It's right now, it's actually kind of a very polarizing culture war sort of thing. I mean, there's, there's, you know, the whole kind of backlash against what people have missed, like the the whole critical race theory for, for starters, what people in politics are calling critical race theory isn't actually critical race theory. I studied critical race theory. It comes out of uh, legal studies and, and Harvard uh, law uh, studying like institutional racism within the legal system. And critical race theory has been redefined by certain kind of uh, bad faith actors as uh, this, you know, kind of what they're terming reverse racism, you know, whites are evil kind of thing, which is not at all what it is. But anyway, uh, diversity inclusion is important, but unfortunately, whenever there's progress, there's a backlash, right? You know, you saw kind of the, 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 the black lives matter movement kind of gained some momentum. You saw kind of some of the outcry with, you know, with, with some of the, you know, kind of the, the 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 high profile you know George Floyd and and things like this or Martin Arbery like that that gains some awareness and momentum but now there's this political backlash right and and there's legend like there's legislation that's been passed all over the country what they call divisive concepts legislation I, I've read it um before I had my students read it in in my sociology class my race minority relations class and it's it's this legislation that's kind of been copied and pasted from one state to the next in primarily red states. That's kind of anti-diversity training, anti-diversity. Like it, it really, you know, like if, if you, if the way the legislation is written is if, if a teacher teaches something that they don't like in the legislation, basically about diversity, um, they can have complaints filed against them. And there, there's a lot of sanctions anyway. It, it's this really, so like as much as I, I like to, you know, I like your optimism and I do think the long arc of history is progress. There's also, you know, it's, it's a little bit back to dialectic, right? Thesis synthesis, and there, there's always a backlash, right? Um, and unfortunately with, with inclusion, there is this backlash. And I think part of it is how people view what it's what what this great grand experiment as we call it is supposed to look like you you referenced the melting pot which is kind of the, the way his you know long for a lot of years people viewed it um and there you know that this is kind of a, what we call like a acculturation or assimilation like like what are the processes whereby um like any in any society you have the dominant cultures the you know the groups that have been there that have the most power and sway, and and then you have what we sociologically call subordinate groups, groups with less power and status that come in, and have to kind of become part right of that group, that that society, and and there's a lot of kind of ways of looking at well, what does that look like? What do and there's there's different models of that within sociology they talk about. Um, there's kind of an Anglo conformity Americanization they talk about. 
where the the subordinate groups that come in, the the, the groups with you know the the immigrant groups, minority groups, whoever come in and have to conform to kind of the existing kind of Anglo society. That's one model they talk about. There's another model they talk about, which is sort of that that melting pot where everyone comes in and they form something new, right? Uh, the tricky part about that is those power dynamics exist. So whatever that new thing is still looks a lot like the dominant culture. <clears throat> and then there's sort of these cultural relativist sort of models where everyone comes in and kind of just kind of continues to ex- maintain their existing culture, but finds a way to live in peace. I, I think there's a, the, the, the most kind of viable model. My opinion is sort of what call like a core values slash uh, um, oh, what's the, the core value slash relativism where we all come together and we agree on a shared set of core values that we all share, but everyone, every group maintains their cultural distinctives in the non, you know, core areas, so to speak. But so like d- inclusion is really tricky. What does that look like? Historically, what diversity has, how it's played out has been more like tolerance but not we use that word so much about tolerating <laughs> like well you know historically well the, the dominant groups saying well we'll 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 make room for you and allow you to be here and that's problematic right because an inclusion as a word has been used and that that's that's better but often like one of the critiques of, of kind of diversity mindsets historically by you know kind of minority groups has been that it it's that the dominant group wants diversity to look like taco Tuesdays wants it to look like we get to enjoy what you bring to the table, your cultural artifacts. We get to enjoy the buffet of them. But when it comes to seeding power and seeding equal access to power at the dominant group is much more resistant. Right. And, and, you know, a lot of folks who are, you know, from subordinate groups often like the, the, their mind says, you know, I don't, I don't give a damn if you want to enjoy my music or my culture. I don't care about that. What I care about is equal access to participation in the decision-making and equal right. access to opportunity. Right. So the, the, there's a lot of trickiness to that. Right. So what inclusion and, and diversity really need to look like is diversity of, of, of perspectives and experiences and identities in positions of decision-making power and positions of influence. Right. And if you have disparities in Congress, if you have disparities in uh, those in the most powerful positions in commerce uh, and hint, you do, you know, over-representation of people who look like me, um, you know, that's where things are most important, right? It's not, uh, just you know do we like the various cultural artifacts it's it's really you know diversity and inclusion really has to be much more about um people seeing themselves and uh in positions of power seeing themselves represented in positions of influence um so that the interests of everyone come to the table and it, when it comes to kind of creating the structures of society yeah there's um that's why this Super Bowl is actually sort of a historical event politically. Um, you know, I mean, you said it really well about the backlash. Like, I'll never forget um, Van Jones on the night Trump won. 
um, saying, you know what this is, right? And everyone's like, what? He said, it's a white lashing. And at the time, I was like, whoa. But having actually written, um, I was writing op-eds then for a local newspaper where I was cautioning people on, you know, from a racial perspective on what a Trump presidency could mean and very alarmed when um, during the debates he was asked about Black Lives Matter and pivoted immediately into saying how he wanted to adopt stricter stop and frisks frisk laws in the major cities, um, which was in a way a prophecy because of the George Floyd um, tragedy uh, a few years later. Um, you know, they're, they're just so, you know, it's like it's, America's always been like a system politically of checks and balances and how, you know, here we had the first black president in our nation's history um and then suddenly you know it's hard to imagine it's still we have donald trump and um and what and to think that here we are now in 2024 and that dynamic is still in the maga dynamic is still in play is flabbergasting um and you know one of the biggest backlashes of this of the taylor swift uh, inclusion in the Chiefs uh, run to a Super Bowl is her, you know, um, is the effect she's had on MAGA zealots um, and the the negative effect um, and the way she's championed um, her Swifties to go, uh, you know, volunteer, I mean, to go um, register to vote, I mean, in record fashions. I mean, all that plays a, dy a political dy dynamic in this that is, for some, toxic. Um, and for others, you know, who are more, you know, um, perhaps liberal, I would say, or op open to, you know, um, more so to inclusion, um, are excited about this. So, you know, that aspect is the elephant in the room, obviously. And... You know, Kyle, I mean, given the, and you're a student of history, given the historical perspectives, is this Super Bowl take on sort of added meaning? What do you think? It's hard to predict what will and will not be remembered years and years from now historically. I mean, Joe brought up the great point, which is like over a long period of history, the trend line is always moving upward. Like it is moving in a more positive direction over the past, you know, 100, 200 years. The trend line is positive. It has never been a, a better time in human history to be alive when you talk about um, not just uh, progress in terms of diversity and inclusion, but just in general, you know, it's health, you know, uh, life expectancy is increases, diseases birth rates at uh you know child death rates things of those sorts have never been better so it's never been a better time to be alive and the through line will always be positive because change is observable over a long period of time but on the flip side that doesn't help us who are only going to be around at most for a hundred years you know the the through line all the way through history doesn't necessarily help us in the short term because you know, Walter, I hope that you live to be 140 years, but there's a good chance I'm going to outlive you. There's a good <laughs> chance that because <laughs> we do have, you know, three people that are separated by about 
15 to 20 years apart in this zoom. And it's that essential idea of like, as time will go along, we'll see different change and observe it over a long period of time. You have a different perspective than I have. And Joe has a different perspective than both of us, just based on shared life experience and the places in the country that we live and different cultural values of those sorts. But it's hard to, it's hard to know what culturally is going to stick five to 10 years from now. And it's hard to predict what is going to stick historically uh, five, 10 or even 20 years from now. But I think a lot of it depends on what Joe said earlier is just, is this a, is this a fad or is this going to be a long-term partnership between Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey? That's kind of the big X factor. That is a bigger determinant than whether or not Kansas city beats San Francisco or whether or not Brock Purdy throws for, four touchdowns against Kansas city. I think the thing that matters a bit more is whether or not Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are going to stay a couple to determine whether or not this super bowl will have greater cultural impact. And maybe, maybe you could say going in that it's, it's unique in that sense, but I don't know if it'll have like staying power culturally that we'll remember. Cause it could be something that has a longer, you know, cultural impact. Or like I said earlier, it could be like Donna Kelsey last year where it's like a fun, cool story. And then we kind of forget about it once eight months pass or whatever it is. I mean, Donna Kelsey's still there, but last year, you know, you couldn't go two seconds listening to television and sports radio without hearing people talk about the Kelsey mom before the Super Bowl between Philly and Kansas City. So Time will tell to answer your question, Walter. I, I think it has the possibility for historical. Yeah, significance, I think Taylor Swift it is, could also be unique. Yeah. I mean, I think the Taylor Swift thing, obviously, because she has this kind of, you know, uh, critical mass of, of fa- fans and, and cultural relevance. She's, you know, it's going to stick longer than the, the Donna yeah. Kelsey thing, even with yeah. the whole kind of football connection to it. Uh, but you know, when he retires. You know, or they break up, whichever happens first. Um, you know, it's 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 going to take. I think it's going to drop off a lot. I think it will drop off some. You know, after this season, either way. Um, but it's it's inevitably, I think, going to you know kind of recede some. Right. I, I saw the told. I saw this thing on social media. Maybe you maybe you've seen it. I don't know. It was funny when 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 the whole thing started. Uh, there was this guy, kind of you know, TikTok or whatever, recording a conversation with his wife or whatever, and he was kind of saying or something. He was kind of playing playing dumb. He's like, "Hey, you know, uh, I think I think this Taylor Swift person, I think she's about to you know blow up, like become really big." And, and his <laughs> wife's like, "Wait, what?" It's like, yeah, she's dating Travis Kelsey, and like he's like, like the best tight end ever. And I, I think it's gonna really blow up her popularity <laughs> and she was just like oh you do oh <laughs> <You're>, wow <laughs> she's gonna blow up she's gonna blow up he's like yeah, yeah travis kelsey's like he's like he's great he's amazing i think she's <laughs> yeah you guys <laughs> it, don't it was hilarious you guys don't understand taylor swift has been maybe the biggest pop star in the world since yeah. i was nine years old <laughs> like <laughs> It's been so crazy how long she has she has had cultural staying power. It's incredible. I think it's really I mean, I know all the songs because you can't be a 12 year old in 2013 and not know Taylor Swift music. It's just it's not possible. It's absolutely incredible how 
11 years later and like three cultural generations later, like, I don't know how 13, 14 and 15 year olds now feel about Taylor Swift, but I know people who are like my age culturally, which is like people like 20 to 25 and people 15 to 20 right now. Yeah. Taylor Swift has a, has legitimate cultural staying power. And it's just remarkable how it's been like 15 years of that. It's, it's yeah. pretty incredible. And she's done all the mistakes that normally come along with someone who like gets to fame and makes doesn't realize the power influence she had. She's made all the mistakes and is now very calculated. One of the interesting stories I think of about that is that when uh, the whole crypto boom was going on, I think one of the crypto companies went to her and offered a whole bunch of money the way they did to Tom Brady or Steph Curry or whoever, you know, all the people who are endorsing crypto for like two years and I remember that she kind of got back was kind of like, hey, we don't really understand what this is and we don't understand the value that it's providing. And so we're going to decline the money and we don't really want to push this on to people who are our supporters without kind of understanding what it is. And historically, she looks pretty good for doing that. It's kind of that idea of like having a bit of a conscience, even as you have, you know, massive cultural influence, uh, using it not necessarily for you know she makes tons of money behind it but if you know the story behind it like she her her old manager stole so much money from her when she was younger and the contracts were set up to to siphon tons of money away kind of in the way that like elvis's manager kind of took a bunch of money away from him and so that's part of the reason why she's re-recording all her albums is so that she can get the profits from the album sales instead of her old manager who gets the sales on most of her original albums and so She's been through all those mistakes, gone through the problems around that, and now has like legitimate influence and a perspective that makes it so that she's very calculated and knows how to make some of these decisions work and has kind of a direct line to her audience. It's really remarkable. And then she's chosen to now use that. I mean, she's obviously, you know, like you said, it's a love story from the very beginning, but now the NFL is kind of grifting off of that influence and power in essence a little bit just by having her associated with some of these broadcasts and some of these games and just the storylines around football. It's kind of interesting to think about the NFL $100 billion entity kind of grifting off of some of that cultural capital that she has. Yeah, the um, her outreach is just extraordinary. Uh, in the New Yorker recently... They published an article written by uh, an inmate named Joe Garcia, who um, I think that's his name, mm -hmm. who writes about the influence that Taylor Swift has had on his his uh, um, incarceration. Um, it's a stunning piece. Um, and he was convicted for murder and <clears throat> sub for parole, I think, in like 10 years or something. But um but and he he explains in incredible depth how um Taylor Swift's songs um affected his you know like spoke directly to his soul and um phenomenal i mean and just you know this is so such a classic american scenario of pop icon and her outreach um, and its effect on all things, you know, American. Um, and, uh, you know, the power of this is just, 
seemingly magnificent. Um, and it depends how you want to, how anyone wants to look at it. I mean, magnificence in, 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 in terms of its scope and its breadth. Um, you know, it's beyond what normally you would, you would think it would be. I mean, in the past, I mean, pop icons could have great influence in, in certain ways, but none, no one has had the kind of, um, political influence that she's had. I mean, I know Robert De Niro has had to try to use his platform, try to express his opinions. And there have been others. And, um, but, uh, I mean, in her case, her message has been, you know, talk about Walt Whitman shout his barbaric yawp over the rooftops of the world. Well, her songs and her messages are going over the rooftops of the world in such a um, you know profound manner and resonant manner that the ramifications of all of that are absolutely awesome. I mean, awesome in the sense of, you know, not in the, you know, um, awesome in the sense of the, the magnitude of it, um, yeah. the power of it. I mean, think of how this gives people voices when you know and platforms when they can enter the public forum you know and what this means uh can mean to anyone i mean anyone look at eminem um and the platform he has i mean it, this is just a stunning confluence i think this game is and a historical confluence of certain powers that be that you know, go way beyond what the football game is and um, have, especially in an election year, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the timing of this seems almost biblical. Uh, so it, it adds this extra dimension that uh, I don't know we've ever seen surround American football game. Yeah, and I think magnificent in scope is a really great way to describe it because it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. There's a lot of cases where if you've seen some of the videos coming out of her concerts, there's a big racial disparity aspect at her, her concerts. There's it's, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. She's made some mistakes along the way, but your, your overwhelming point is correct is that it is magnificent in scope and it's better than a, what a lot of the pop icons of the past have done with their platforms or use their platforms for when you have that level of cultural capital. I think that's a very good way to phrase it is that it is magnificent in scope and uh, you know, it's not perfect, but it is, she is, she has a level of influence that is being used better than historically people with the level of cultural capital that she would have are using it for. Right. Yeah. I think Joe's internet popped out right there. So we'll see if he hops back in here. Well, I'm just fascinated that, you know, I, the, the, the game beyond the game, you know, the, the contest beyond the, the contest is, is incredibly synced up at such a key pivotal time in American history. And, you know, like Joe was talking about backlashes, um, you know, he's right. I mean, typically, 
when there's progress, there's steps back. Like the the banning of books. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just bizarre. Yeah. Um, it's bizarre. So, but... Um, and, and this gets into a whole conversation about conservatism versus more ideological right-wing stuff, which most people chalk up to be fascism, but there's, you know, there's different layers along the way to get right. to fascism. But it's that idea of this is no longer about protecting traditional values or trying to p- slow down change. It's more ideological in the other direction. And when it becomes about right. ideology instead of about values, that's when you cross the line into kind of more fascist type of territory is right. when it just becomes about the ideology. See, I object to the terms conservative and liberal because I don't think that's what this is all about. Um, I don't think that's what America is all about because it's either inclusive or it's non-inclusive. And, you know, so when you think of it in that way, in that manner, I mean, you know, all the commotion now in the Supreme Court about the decisions being made about abortion, decisions being made about um, the trans community, um, the, you know, um, publishing of books, uh, the, the accessibility of books, um, all these things are, are, have directly to do with inclusion versus non-inclusion or mm-hmm. selective. And that's where we've been as a society was struggling with is that, um, and Joe was sort of, uh, hinting at this well too, is that, um, did you read, uh, uh, Harper Lee's Ghost Set a Watchman. I have not. Yeah, well, it's her sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird that she she <laughs> published, I think, six months before her passing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of people that wish she hadn't because um, the American hero that many of us grew up with, Atticus Finch, um, in Ghost Set of Watchmen, discovered that when Scout comes back from, she was working in New York and now she's a young adult and she comes back to make him in Alabama to, to come home for a visit. She is alarmed to find that Atticus is on the board of the local KKK. And, you know, I mean, for those of us who grew up with Atticus Finch being the, being the heroic um, defender of, of Tom Robinson and being the one man in town could be open-minded enough and, and humane enough to do this and fight, fight the big machine. You know, the, 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 the culture there is now on, on the, um, on the board and the, the, the really salient moment in that novel occurs when uh, Atticus's brother, scout's uncle explains to scout why he's on the board and the way he explains it is the jeffersonian model and 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 mantra of we cannot let government get in the hands of the wrong people and you know mm-hmm. it's so timely of a novel too because you know this is this fear of of inclusion 
is so rooted in fear of losing control. Um, like when you include, you're going to lose control. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for those who the aristocrats in America who've been dictating, you know, um, the do's and don'ts and the, the power um, triangles for so long, you know, have crafted a certain way that, you know, um, but I mean, Trump himself put it <laughs> so succinctly while under attack by, by the way, it's kind of so uh, symbolic and metaphorical that he's been taken down by women, mm -hmm. an array of them, starting with Gene Carroll and then, you know, now with Taylor Swift and, you know, the judge, the various female judges, some of color. Um, it's just stunning um, how this is transpiring is that, you know, that's why for so long women weren't allowed to vote. That's why for so long blacks were slaves was that the ultimate um, line from Trump was and has been, it's a tough time for white men. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, and isn't that what this really is all about? I mean, look at the participants in the um, in the the attack on the Capitol. Uh, that's no melting pot. <laughs> no, uh, you're you're saying that the the people in power wanting to protect and maintain order and control over the power they have. Yeah, that's pretty pretty fundamental. <laughs> Pretty yeah, fundamental mean, part of human history and in American history, pretty much, is right. that, yes, the people in power and, want to maintain and uphold control and influence. I mean, the great in MAGA really means white supremacy. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, given the the characters in play, given who attacked the Capitol and who is who is, you know, at the heart of Trump's base and given his history of dubious uh, dealings um it, you know in racial scenarios <clears throat> i mean all this speaks to a, a side of america that wants just as soon you know put up the border wall and get all the you know people of color out so that or at least maintain white white supremacist um rule over and dominion over the country or at the I mean, very that's... least, literally clear out the people during the Black Lives Matter protests, literally clear out the people to hold a Bible upside down in front of a church. <laughs> in that case, literally yeah. clear out the people. <laughs> you know, I, my uh, General Milley uh, is, is a good friend of one of my best friends who went to Boston College. And uh, her one of her best friends was General Milley's sister, who... Bless her, her heart is, is past um, Mary Kay. Um, his account of how he was misled about that march down to the church where they had him in, I don't know if you remember this, in fatigues, you know, mm -hmm. camo fatigues. Meanwhile, while the peaceful protesters were being rammed, rammed and power hosed backwards um at that critical time he said it was you know he explained this elaborately to my friend sue 
he said it was the most egregious thing he'd ever seen in his life. Um, and he was so repugnated by this and repelled by this that he left. He couldn't bear it anymore and, and came under, was nearly fired because of it the next day. Um, you know, that whole thing, piece of American history, how that all transpired and everything, um, was just, I mean, for those like me who like the American creed of inclusion and what like the, the concept of, uh, all people, you know, having voices and, you know, I mean, that was just, and also the, sh the, the shift of what this could have meant, you know, away from democracy. Because after all, what is democracy? Rule of, what's demos in Greek? Rule of the people. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.